We've arrived now at the, uh, the third Sunday in the Advent season. We, the uh, third candle was lit this morning. And uh, you know what that means, right? It means Christmas is two weeks from tomorrow. So I'm seeing panic-stricken faces all around the room. It's coming up fast. As Lent is a, a time of prayer, it's a time of fasting, it's a time of self-examination and preparation for celebrating the resurrection of the Lord Jesus from the dead. Advent this season is a season also of preparation of our hearts and, and of our minds uh, to look back, remembering uh, and receiving him as he came to us first as an infant, God in human flesh, uh, wrapped in swaddling cloths, lying in a manger, and then to look forward in anticipation of his coming again. First, to rapture the church, which is the next uh, item, uh, next agenda on, on the calendar. And then again, to rule and to reign as the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Isn't it interesting that when we're asked, which we are asked a lot this time of year, um, whether we're ready for Christmas, our thoughts turn immediately, don't they, to shopping and uh, to baking, to decorating, to gift giving, maybe to the shopping for that a new set of clothes, a new dress. Few of us <clears throat> give real consideration to the question of whether we've made adequate provision in our month uh, to prepare our hearts and minds to receive the gift of the incarnate Son of God. The, the purpose, really, of this series of messages is to make at least a small contribution to your personal process of preparation uh, to really receive Jesus at his birth on Christmas Day. You may be aware that we're approaching the story of Christmas uh, this year through the lens of four songs that the gospel writer Luke included in the birth narrative of Jesus, specifically the song of Mary and the song of Zacharias in Luke chapter 1, uh, and then here in Luke chapter 2, the song of the angels and the song of an old man named Simeon, uh, whom we'll meet next week. <clears throat> it is to the angels' song, then, that we turn this morning. You may want to turn there in your Bibles or on your personal device, Luke 2, uh, verses 1 through 20. Luke 2, verses 1 through 20. I was reminded in my preparations this week of a fun little inventory that I've had in my files um, for a very long time. I think it goes all the way back to when I was a youth pastor. I won't tell you how long ago that was, but it's been a while. There are about 40 questions in all. I'm going to give you a pass on 37 of them. Uh, I, I thought that I would ask just a few uh, this morning. Is that all right if we just have a little quiz um, just, just to test us this morning? All right, Here, here's the first one. These are multiple choice. How many angels spoke to the shepherds? Was it A, 1, B, 3, C, a multitude, or D, none of the above? C, C, 1. You guys are a lot more verbal than the first service. No, no, nobody said anything. Answer is A, one angel spoke to the shepherds. Uh, the rest of them were praising God. <coughs> Directing. So how many got that right? Okay, a few of you scholars. Number two, what is a heavenly host? Is it A, the angel at the gate of heaven? Or B, the angel who invites people to heaven? C, the angel who serves drinks in heaven? 
D, an angel choir. E, an angel army. Or F, none of the above. Answer is E, an angel army. You know, we occasionally sing a song around here um, that's titled The God of Angel Armies. You guys recognize that a little song? Maybe it's been a while since we've sung that. But, uh, you know, here's a question you might consider discussing in your life group if you're meeting this week. Um, that is, that given there are, that there are several classes of angels that are mentioned in Scripture, there's cherubim and seraphim and a bunch of other strange-looking creatures described in Revelation. Um, why might it be that an angel army prepared for battle was gathered in the air over Bethlehem on that particular night? Interesting question, isn't it? Something to think about. Okay, here's the third one. What did the angels sing? Was it A, joy to the world, the Lord has come, and so forth? Or was it B, Alleluia, or C, unto us a child is born, or D, glory to God in the highest, or E, my sweet Lord, or F, none of the above. Which is it? How sure of you are you of your answer? Answer is F, none of the above. It's a trick question. They didn't sing at all, did they? Yeah, see, got you there. Lick records that they only spoke. They only spoke, and yet the lyrical manner in which they spoke uh, causes us to think of their words as having been sung, right? Not spoken. Um, and in fact, that's true of all the all four of the songs of Christmas that we're examining in this series. So as you might imagine, as they come to the close of the entire quiz, 40-some questions in all, those who have taken the quiz come to to one of two realizations. Uh, for some, it's that they don't know the story at all. And for others, it's that they're not as familiar with the real story as it's written in Scripture as they believe themselves to be. So much of what we think about Christmas and the events of Christmas are conditioned by artwork and <clears throat> Christmas carols, and uh, not all of which are scripturally accurate. Well, we're going to join the story this morning at verse 8. Uh, in verses 1 to 7, as it was read to us earlier, uh, Mary and Joseph have traveled from Nazareth in the north in Galilee, uh, southward to Bethlehem, just a few miles from Jerusalem. Uh, Bethlehem was Joseph's ancestral home as a descendant of King David. They went there because Caesar Augustus had ordered a census of the empire, and each family was to return to their ancestral home to be registered, which I think is just, you know, just like the sovereign God, right? Um, the, the Messiah was to be born in Bethlehem, and so God just kind of put it in the heart and mind of Caesar Augustus to order uh, an event that would require Mary and Joseph to go. So it was while they were there, of course, that Mary arrived at full term in her pregnancy. She went into labor. She gave birth to her firstborn, a son, wrapped him in swaddling cloths, laid him in a manger, a, a feeding trough. I was thinking the other day about when we were in Israel, uh, being at the city of Megiddo and, and looking down and seeing this stone trough. And I asked our tour guide, what is that? He said, well, it's a manger, of course. It's a manger. And I said, it's not wooden. It doesn't have any light shining on it. It's, there are no candles around it. It's just this stone trough. And that's where Jesus was laid. You know, a, a necessity brought about by the fact 
that the guest room in the house in which they were staying happened to be occupied. And when we read there was no room for them in the inn, in the older translations, the word inn actually is the word kataluma, and it means a guest room. So they they were consigned to where the animals were um, because it was a busy time in Bethlehem. And the guest room that they might have stayed in otherwise was occupied. At verse 8 of Luke 2, we read, And in the same region there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. Now, I could at this point spend a good deal of time talking about these shepherds out in the fields, but I won't uh, for two reasons. First, our guest last Sunday, Philip McCallum, spent time on this, and I don't really feel the need to repeat what he already said so well. But secondly, my interest this morning is in the angels and in their song, what they had to say in this unique and wonderful moment. And there's more than enough here, trust me, for several messages. But I will say this, that that those shepherds had a close encounter, didn't they, of the heavenly kind? That, That the lowly were suddenly brought face to face with the holy. Shepherds were not highly regarded. Because of the nature of their work, they were nearly always in a condition of ritual uncleanness so that they couldn't participate in the religious life of Israel. They were regarded as untrustworthy. They they weren't entirely outcast, but neither were they particularly embraced by polite Jewish society. And, And so it's surprising to us should be surprising to us and noteworthy that an angel of the Lord appeared and the glory of the Lord was revealed not to aristocrats or rulers or religious leaders, priests or Pharisees or Sadducees, but to the humble, uh, to the likes of shepherds. And it calls to mind, I think, the words of God through the prophet Isaiah, for thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. I dwell in the high and holy place and also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. See, the heart of God is for the lowly. So are you feeling lowly today? Uh, Are you lowly today? God's eye is turned in your direction. His mind is on you. His heart is for you. And on this night, there came a profound, life-changing, history-shaping intersection of the lowly and the holy. Looking back again at verse 8, Luke says that an angel of the Lord appeared to them. Uh, The literal Greek says that the angel came and stood by them, which I think is kind of freaky, don't you? I mean, um, have you ever had that startling experience of of suddenly becoming aware that there is someone standing inches or feet away from you who weren't there just a moment ago? You're pretty sure, right? But all of a sudden, there they are. It's it's startling. It's unnerving. Almost destabilizing sometimes. And, and doesn't the notion that the angel was standing next to them on terra firma completely transform your mental image 
of an angel hovering over them in the sky. Uh, I was thinking about that earlier as we sang that that line, you know, um, when low above the earth, um, how did that go? I'm forgetting it. No, the one about a light shining all from heaven. But it's as if the angel slipped out from behind the veil of heaven to just stand next to them. And I wonder if that isn't really more accurate. That that instead of coming down, he just kind of slipped in beside them. And as he does, Luke records that the glory of the Lord shone around them, or as the King James Version puts it, I think better, round about them, because that's what the word that's used there actually means, that it shone around them. So let's take a moment and think about this word glory. What does it mean? Here's a simple definition, that the glory of the Lord is the visible manifestation of the presence of the Holy God, the visible manifestation of the presence of the Holy God. First Timothy 6 and verse 16 speaks of God who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see. To the Israelites during the exodus from Egypt, you remember that story? that the, the, It was the glory of the Lord, the Shekinah glory of the Lord, that appeared to them in a cloud by day, that led them by day, and in a pillar of fire that led them by night. You might recall that when Moses returned to the Israelite camp, after having been alone with God on Mount Sinai, receiving the tablets on which the Ten Commandments were written, that his face was so radiant that he had to wear a veil over his face, you know? People were saying, well, we always knew you were bright, Moses, but not that bright, right? So he is wearing a veil over his face for the sake of those around him because because the shine of his face, the radiancy of his face was so great. In Revelation 21, uh, John reports that in the new Jerusalem, in heaven, there will be no need for the sun or the moon, that there will be no night for the glory of God gives it its light. And it says that, and its lamp is the lamb, the Lord Jesus Christ. Hard to imagine, isn't it? The glory of the Lord will light all of heaven. So let's understand together uh, this morning that what Luke tells us, that the glory of the Lord shone around them, that this glory that suddenly enveloped them, that suddenly encompassed these lowly shepherds, that night was not the glory of the angel himself, but rather it was the radiance of, of the glory of the Lord, reflected by an angel who had come to the lowly directly from the presence of the holy. And he couldn't do anything but shine in the darkness of that night. One of the roots of biblical interpretation, when you you want to understand what a biblical passage is all, all about, just one of the tools, is to watch for repeated words or phrases. So notice with me here in verse 9, we read the word Lord twice. And then once again in verse 11, uh, an angel of the Lord appears. In his appearing, the glory of the Lord shines all around the shepherds. And this angel of the Lord proceeds to bring a message about the birth of Christ the Lord. And then in verse 15, the shepherds go in search of the thing that the Lord 
had made known to them. The message of Christmas is a message from the Lord about the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, and so entered into human history in human flesh. Over the past few years now, Marcy and I have watched the Christmas special called The Shepherd that was produced by the um, producers of the Chosen series. Uh, And we've thoroughly enjoyed that. But on our first viewing, when they came to this particular scene in the story, I I was kind of disappointed. There's a, a small group of three or four shepherds. They're sitting outdoors by a fire when suddenly this bright light shines down on them and and they're portrayed as fearful, of course, and the impression is given that something is being communicated from the direction of the source of that light, but you don't hear any words. There are no words spoken. Uh, And two thoughts occurred to me. First, how very difficult it, it would be for a movie director to adequately portray something that is so utterly unique and powerful and supernatural and otherworldly and all of those words. And so I cut them a little slack at that moment, Uh, but also realizing that anytime you try to portray anything from the Bible on the screen, somebody's going to criticize you for something, right? It's always going to happen. You're never going to get everything right. But my second thought was that to exclude the actual message of the angel, to exclude the subsequent worship of uh, the multitude of angels is to have missed an enormous opportunity. Why? Because the message spoken by the angel and then celebrated by that angel army is the very heart of the gospel itself. It's a, it's a declaration of the gospel. And, and even the Peanuts character Linus knows that that's what Christmas is all about, Charlie Brown. Right? At verse 10, the angel began to sing the first lines of his song. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. By the way, as I was preparing this week, I was reminded of a a childhood Christmas pageant in which I, yes, I, played the role of this angel who announced to the shepherds the good news of great joy. And I, I was in late elementary school, uh, in our church at that time were two families, two two brothers and their families, who happened to be cosmetologists, who also had backgrounds in stage production and in stage makeup. Uh, and they painted my face and my hair and all of my exposed skin this shiny silver. And of course, that was some years ago. It was probably all toxic, you know. <laughs> but But then they put a white robe on me with a a white, shiny, silver sash and strapped huge angel wings made of real feathers. I don't know where they got these. They were heavy. Remember that. And then they topped it all off with a brilliant halo on my head. I'm pretty sure no one in their right mind that evening confused anything about my appearance with the glory of the Lord. Um, But I do have to tell you that my mom said I looked quite heavenly. So... Thank you, Mom. Stepping out from behind a starry curtain, I I raised my hands and said, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. And that's the King James Version, which is pretty much all we had to work with back in those days. But it's not far off from the English Standard Version we use today. But let's look more closely at that. First, the angel says to the terrified shepherds, Fear not. Fear not. Well, why not? 
That's my question. Why not? Fear seems entirely appropriate to the moment, I think. Anyone with a pulse would have been scared out of their wits by the suddenness and the brightness and the glory that was assaulting their senses at that moment. They probably feared for their lives. And these were Jewish shepherds. They would have known from the scriptures that no one can see the Lord and keep on living and that for sinful people to suddenly find themselves in the the very presence of a holy God would spell judgment for sure. Well, they must have thought they were toast or because they're Jews, burnt bagels. So, so the angel tells them why not. It's because this moment, this message is not bad news, but very good news. And not now about judgment, but all about joy. Exceedingly great joy and not just for some but for all the people I want you to notice that phrase all the people and notice that it's not for all people but for all the people the word he uses for the people in the Greek is laos its counterpart in Hebrew is used most often in the Old Testament for the people of the Lord, the congregation of Israel, and more specifically, for believing Israel, that is, the Israel of faith, not merely the Israel of blood or of lineage, descendancy. Here's how John put it in the prologue of his gospel, and maybe you'll hear this with with new ears now. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. See, the birth of God in human flesh is good news. The word the angel used is euangelizomai, or at least that's the translation in Greek. It's a mouthful. But it means what the angel said, good news. Later in the New Testament, euangelizo is the word translated gospel, the the complete message of the good news that, that God is reconciling men and women to himself in and through Jesus Christ, not counting our sins against us. But notice also that it's actually and ultimately good news only to those who by faith receive him. Who believe in his name, that is, who receive him as who he is on his terms. And those terms are revealed in the next line of the song. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. So a birth has taken place in Bethlehem, the city of David. The angel begins his announcement with a phrase that's that's very focused, it's very personal. The one who has been born has been born unto you. Unto you. And not only is it a wonderful personal message, but it personalizes the prophecy of Isaiah chapter 9. And verse 6, I'm, I'm sure 
that these Jewish shepherds who had been taught and who had memorized large portions of God's word from earliest childhood would not have missed the origin, the source, the meaning of those words. Unto you, Isaiah 9, 6, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. See, this one who is born is born unto us. This one who is born is born for us, for you, born for me. But if we're willing to be faithful to the context the angel has already established, this one who is born is born only, exclusively, to those who will receive him. And hence the words of the English hymn writer Isaac Watts, let every heart prepare him room. And the angel told them he's born this day. The day for which all Israel had been waiting for thousands of years is this day. I mean, you think about days like that in your life that you've been waiting for seemingly forever, and then they finally come. You can hardly believe that this is the day. Maybe it was the day of your wedding. Maybe it was the day of you know, your birthday, or, or maybe for a child for whom a, a year seems like an eternity. It's Christmas. It's finally Christmas. The day has finally come. It's unbelievable. It's amazing. God now is keeping his ancient promise. He's born in the city of David. Well, of course he is. Every resident of Bethlehem was fully aware of Micah's big prophecy regarding their little hometown. If they had city brochures back in those days, you know, it might have said, hey, and think about Bethlehem. The Messiah is going to be born here. Come and build a home. The promised Messiah was to be born in Bethlehem. Micah, prophet Micah, chapter 5, verse 2, But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth from me, one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. But wait, who is this who is born in Bethlehem? The angel announces three titles For the newborn, verse 11, For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. I want us to look at those three titles. The first is Savior. A Savior is born to you. The Greek word is soter, and it speaks of a deliverer. It speaks of a maybe a military leader, a political leader who would deliver his people from, in this case, oppression, from the Romans and deliver them their own land as they're still fighting for today. Uh, There was a reason that the angel Gabriel had said to Mary, and behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. And subsequently to Joseph in a dream, she will bear a son, and Joseph, you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And notice that this one command was given separately to both Mary and Joseph. You think maybe God wanted the name of Messiah Christ to be Jesus? 
Don't screw up. His name is to be called Jesus. From one perspective, there was really nothing unusual about the name Jesus. It was actually a very common name in Israel. You could walk into any Jewish village on any day in the first or second centuries and yell up the street, Jesus! Not swearing, calling out the name. And and lots of heads would turn, boys and teenagers and men, because their name was Jesus. His, You can think of it this way. His, his name speaks, in one sense, first of his humanity, of his ordinariness. But it also speaks of his extraordinariness. Jesus is the Greek version of the Old Testament Hebrew name Yahashua, Yehoshua, or Yeshua, or Joshua. It, it comes from two shorter Hebrew words, the name for God, Yahweh, combined with the word that means to save. So the name Jesus means Jehovah saves. And so when you think about it, there's a little redundancy when you say Jesus saves. Because what you're saying is, Yahweh saves, saves. It conveys his purpose. It embodies his mission. Jesus put it this way to his friend Nicodemus, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son that whoever believes in him, in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Few of us know the verse that comes after that. Verse 17, it says, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world might be saved through him. He came to be a Savior. On another occasion, he said, The Son of Man has come to seek and to save the lost, people like you and me. But when you spell Savior or Soter with a small s, a lowercase s, one has to acknowledge this in fact, that there were many Soters in those days. The title was given in Greek culture to all kinds of people from doctors to government officials to philosophers. Caesar Augustus himself referred to himself as Savior, and so did several other Roman emperors and governors. And it was only later that others began to recognize Jesus uniquely as Savior. Uh, Like the friends of the woman with whom Jesus spoke at Jacob's well in Samaria, uh, who later said to her, it's no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. There was a second title the angel assigned to Jesus, and and that is Christ. And Christ is the Greek parallel to the Hebrew Mashiach, or Messiah. It means anointed one. And you'll be surprised, maybe you won't be surprised, to know that it's actually rare in the Old Testament, where the main reference is in Psalm chapter 2, verse 2. It was the act of anointing that down through the centuries had set Certain people apart for special roles, people like prophets and priests and kings. And that oil of anointing symbolized the Holy Spirit being just poured out on these people. So again, spelled with a small M or a small C, there were many messiahs, many Christs. And yet the Old Testament writers pointed forward to something more. They kept on pointing to one who would one day come, who would be anointed with unlimited power 
and authority, an unlimited measure of the Holy Spirit, an unlimited measure of glory. His anointing would be inexhaustible. It would be eternal. It would be everlasting. He would be the definitive and eternal anointed one, the Messiah, the Christ. And the third title given by the angel was Lord. And again, right up front, we have to acknowledge that the title Lord, or in Greek, kurios, was not uncommon in those days either. The title was given to many who exercised, in a variety of settings, absolute authority. So the Latin word used by the Romans was dominus, or one who dominates, dominator. It was used of everyone from a god to an emperor to a common slaveholder. But here's what we must not miss as we think about this title, Lord, as it was spoken by the angel. That these were not Greeks. These were not Romans. These were Jewish, Hebrew-speaking shepherds. The angel would have spoken to them in Hebrew, and the word Lord in Hebrew is not a title, but it is a name, Yahweh. The name of the covenant God, of Israel. Through the Old Testament prophet Isaiah, 700 years before Christ, God repeatedly made clear that He is the one and only Lord. I am Yahweh. I am the Lord, and there is no other. Besides me, there is no God. Isaiah 43.11, I am the Lord, and beside me, there is no Savior. Isaiah 44:24 Thus says the Lord your redeemer who formed you from the womb I am the Lord who made all things who alone stretched out the heavens who spread out the earth by myself 43:15 I am the Lord your holy one the creator of Israel your king 42:8 I am the Lord that is my name my glory I give to no other In the 3rd century B.C., the Hebrew Old Testament was translated into Greek. And when the translators came to this name Yahweh, the word they finally settled on, the word they finally chose to translate Yahweh was kurios, the one who exercises supreme authority, in this case, supreme authority in all the universe. In English, that word is Lord. And and in many modern translations, the title Lord is represented in capital letters, a large capital L, followed by small caps O-R-D. When you see that, understand that what it represents is the name of the God of Israel, Yahweh. And so if we were to go back to that last one that's still on your screen, I am Yahweh. That's what he's saying. I am Yahweh. That is my name. My glory I give to no other. In all of the scriptures, only here, in the words of the angel, are Savior, Christ, and Lord joined together in one sentence. So don't miss what the angel announced. The greatest announcement of all time. A Savior is born in Bethlehem. And this Savior is none other than the promised and long-awaited Messiah. And he is Yahweh. He is God. Astonishing. Earth-shattering. 
And having come to the end of the first and only verse of the song, the angel then launches into this essential bridge that had to be inserted before going to the chorus. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And with that sign then came an implied commission. They themselves were to get up from the the quietness of the night the former quietness of the night, and go to Bethlehem and find this baby. And in finding him, they would experience the validation of the message the angel delivered. And just then the choir arrived. And they sang out the chorus of the song. Suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, not singing, saying, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom He is pleased. Gloria in excelsis Deo. And on earth peace among those with whom he's pleased. We've already seen that a heavenly host is an angel army, but what's a multitude? What's a multitude? What's like a gazillion? You know, that's kind of what that word means. A gazillion, it just means a very, very large number. And it's not unusual these days to hear Christians describe an experience as a God thing, right? Or a God moment. I got a, a text Late last night from Bill Michael, who is suffering for Jesus in the sun in Phoenix as we speak. Hi, Bill. Um, but he, he said, I got a great God story to tell you. And, and, and then he related it. And I'm going to let him tell it when he gets back. It's a good one. It's a God moment. But if there was a genuine, ever a genuine God moment, this one here has to be among the greatest. So again, let's examine what they said. Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he's pleased. Notice with me that, that this is something a bit different than the impression we get when we read the way that the old King James Version of the Bible put it. Because there we read them saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. And on earth peace, goodwill toward men. And one might get the impression that with the birth of the Savior, who is Christ the Lord, everything's going to be hunky-dory, joy, peace, and light for the duration of the history of the universe. Right? Goodwill toward men. Everybody, goodwill toward men. Through the years, we all will be together if the fates allow. Hang a shining star upon the highest bough and have yourself a merry little Christmas now. But that is not at all what they said. Instead, God still gets the glory. But it is only those with whom God is pleased who receive his peace. I think the New International Version puts it, and peace to those upon whom his favor rests. Mankind's greatest need is not political peace. Mankind's greatest need is not some kind of inner peace. Mankind's greatest need is to be at peace with God from whom all of that other peace derives, who created us, but who we can't find it in ourselves to stop offending. Can I get an amen? Isn't that true? Well, then how does one please the offended God? 
And there's a clue in Hebrews 11.6, a big fat clue. And without faith, it is impossible to please him. Forever who would, for whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. See, there it is. The key to pleasing God is faith in him. Not just faith in general, not just faith as an ideal, but active faith in him. It's to transfer our faith, our trust, our confidence away from religion, away from philosophy, from good and charitable works, from comparison, from our own clever machinations, and having done that, to seek in our lives only him, to put our faith in only him, to trust only in him for everything we ultimately need. Earlier I put it this way, receiving Jesus on his own terms. What are those terms? That we acknowledge him for who he is, that we believe in his name, Savior, Christ, Lord. As Savior, recognizing that there is no one else who can save us from the predicament of our sin and separation from God. As Christ, recognizing that he is the uniquely anointed one of whom all the scriptures have been pointing for thousands of years. And therefore, the only ultimate one with whom we have to do. And as Lord, recognizing and submitting to his supreme authority in heaven and on earth, in all of the universe, and in our lives as eternal God. And then as Paul put it in his letter to the Christians in Rome, chapter 5, verse 1, having been justified by faith, that is made right with God by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And we stand before him, not on the basis of our merit, of our good works, our credit, but on the basis of his grace. And we are filled with the wonderful, confident hope of the glory of God, eternity with him in heaven. Go with me then to verse 15. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds, you ever wonder about that, by the way? The angels going away from them into heaven, did they like just kind of disappear behind the curtain again or... Or did they just rocket into space like NASA? Or, you know, what was that? We don't know. But they went away from them into heaven. The shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. See, what the shepherds did in response to the prompting of the angels is what the writer of Hebrews said. Whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. And what have the angels said? This will be a sign for you. And you'll find a, that you will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And when they acted then on what the angel uh, sent from God had said to them and having then made that search, They found only one, I guess, in all of Bethlehem, only one baby wrapped in swaddling cloths who happened to have been that night laid in a manger. And they recognized that his promise was true. It was a fulfilled mission. They recognized that God had rewarded them. God rewards those who seek him. 
So let me ask you, in this Advent season and in your life in general, are you seeking Him? I mean, really seeking Him. And my hope for you is that that you would come to that you would not come to the close of another Christmas season. And more importantly, come to the close of your one life without having sought him and found him. Well, how then should we respond to the song of the angels and all that's revealed here in this passage? I think the text itself suggests appropriate responses for us. And the first is simple obedience. Simple obedience. As we've just seen at the direction of the angel, the shepherds went and found the baby Jesus, found that everything was just as the angel had said. So why not take a closer look in this year, in this season? Don't, don't just romanticize Christmas. There's, there's a lot that we do that romanticizes Christmas. It's not bad in and of itself. But don't just do that. Or, or, or don't just idealize the little baby Jesus. But get to know Jesus the man, the, the Savior, the Christ, the Lord. Seek the Lord in this season. Discover again, or even maybe for the very first time, that he is who he claimed to be and who all of Scripture claims him to be. And maybe this is the day, maybe this is the season in which you'll finally transfer your trust to Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. I pray that it is. Second response suggested here is witness. In verse 17, we read that the shepherds made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. Uh, They couldn't stop talking about it. So think about that. How, how can you leverage this season in which we're told that people are most open to hearing about Jesus to share the gospel with your family, with your friends, with your neighbors, with your co-workers? Uh, maybe it would be just as simple as an invitation to church. And, and we know that there are a lot of people who would accept an invitation to church if someone would just invite them. And maybe they would hear the gospel and maybe their lives would be changed. Maybe their eternity, their eternal destiny would be redirected. A third response here is wonder. Verse 18 tells us that all who heard the message wondered at what the shepherds had told them. Sometimes it's easy to look for wonder in all the wrong places at this time of year. I mean, you see that wonder thing in all the commercials, right? Just, oh, wonder. But there's a wonder that's kind of like wonder bread, right? I mean, it looks nice, it's tasty on one level, and yet it's entirely devoid of nutrition. But there's another deep, satisfying, nourishing kind of wonder and amazement that results from taking time to understand at a deeper level who God is, who Jesus is, what God was about in sending his son to be our savior, that he really loves us, that he really loves you personally, that he loved you enough to die for you so that you might live. Fourth response is contemplation. Contemplation. So I hear so many Christians these days who are scared seemingly to death of the word 
contemplation or contemplative because it for them it smacks of mysticism. But check out Mary's response in verse 19. It says that she treasured up, that is, she took to mind all that she was experiencing. Think about what she was experiencing physically. I, I can't imagine it because I'm a guy. But just imagine what her body was going through, just having given birth spiritually, mentally, emotionally, all that was going on around her that was new and surprising and hard to wrap her mind around. So what she did was she treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart, conducting this internal dialogue about all of it, contemplating its meaning. I would encourage you to have that kind of contemplative Christmas. And finally, in verse 20, there is worship. Worship. The shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all that they had heard and seen as it had been told them. And because of that, they, because of all that they had heard and seen, and because it was just as they had told, been told, they couldn't avoid glorifying and praising God. They couldn't avoid expressing themselves. And if you consider yourself among the persuaded when it comes to Jesus, and if you're finding God's word to be true and trustworthy, then you can do no other than to be a worshiper. I got to tell you, I, I worry about you sometimes as I watch you in worship. And I wonder if you're really persuaded. That's just an honest observation. Does your face sell your message? I don't know. But if you really know him, if you're really persuaded of who he is, you can do no less than worship. Finally, receive him. Receive him. Let every heart prepare him room. Let your heart prepare him room. I always think of this in regard to the busyness of this month. There's there's so many things I actually just hate about this month. Because we're so busy, we don't have room for him. Let every heart prepare him room. As many as received him to them, he gave the right to become the children of God. As the band comes, I, I would venture the suggestion of this morning that your preparation of your own heart and mind for Christmas ought to include some of each of these things. Uh, obedience, witness, wonder, contemplation, worship, reception of Jesus. How will you respond? How will you respond?